if you are if you are apt to pray, <clears throat> pray for my voice. I may or may not have yelled a little too loudly at a certain college football game last night. <clears throat> the good news is it's not at the television. Uh, we actually were there, and I promised myself I would not, and then my team gave me hope that they might win, and I had to join. And so um, I might struggle a little bit this morning, but we'll get through it. <clears throat> this, this fall, we are in the middle of a series uh, from the life of David from First and Second Samuel. And we've said over and over again that these stories about David and, and Saul were written to the exiles that returned from the Babylonian captivity to the land of promise to remind them of the theme of the promise of David and David's throne, that it was through David, and specifically it was through a certain son of David, a descendant of David, that God would bring about the salvation, the ultimate salvation of his people. So the stories of David here are about the search for a true king, the king the Bible promises, through whom God would renew the earth. And these stories, we believe, teach us about Jesus, his reign, and what it means for us to live under his authority, to live with kingly character as we follow the true king. That's what we're looking at this fall. Now this morning we're going to see that what it means for us to follow him and what it means for us to live with kingly character. Uh, the theme of the service or the theme of the message this morning is that it, what, one of the things that, that means is that we're going to need friends. That part of what God's going to do by the power of the Spirit in us is, is turn us into a people that can really befriend one another well. And so let's read these pa- this passage of Scripture. Together, it's long, but it kind of gets at the, the essence of these chapters 18, 19, and 20, some of the themes that happen in some of these places. So you see there, it's, a, it's a, kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different places. We're going to read it together. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be behind me on the screen, I believe. So let's read together this morning, okay? About the friendship that David and Jonathan share with one another. For Samuel 18, verse 1, soon, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David in his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people. He and also in the sight of Saul, Saul's servant. I think that's a typo. Verse 12, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow on the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David. What's happened is in, the, in this intervening time is they, we saw last week Saul's become jealous of David. And so Jonathan and David are, are talking about how to deal with Saul's jealousy. So behold, if he is well pleased or well disposed towards David, shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm? The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him for he loved him as his own soul. And when the new moon came, the king, Saul, sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, 
Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son, thank you, of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul's father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. This is God's word. Uh, Like I said, uh, friendship. If you're going to be successful... If you're going to live life as it was meant to be lived, if you're going to live with kingly character, if you're going to live as a faithful disciple of Jesus, you need friends. Now, let me make a case for this from these chapters in um, 1 Samuel 18 through 20. Um, Let's look a little closer at the text. In chapters 18 through 20 of 1 Samuel, we can't read them all, obviously we'd be here all morning, but six times, six times Saul tries to kill David. David's exiled, he's hated, he's persecuted, he's sent away, he's hunted down by Saul's army, he's forced to wander in the wilderness of En Gedi for, for many, many months. I mean, it's a, this is a difficult time in David's life, these chapters. And one of the features of the text is that interspersed within the chapters about Saul's hatred of David and his persecution of him are these stories of David and Jonathan and their love for one another, their friendship with one another. And so one of the points the author is trying to make in arranging the material this way is just this, that, what, that David's friendship with Jonathan is what got him through. It was his friendship with Jonathan that provided the strength and the courage uh, and, and that he needed to overcome the obstacles and the struggles that he faced. And so without Jonathan, David never would have made it, and you won't either. You need a friend. You need friends. And, and this is under assault in our culture and I don't need to say anything more than to show you how um, friendship has been devalued in our culture, even by the sense of friendship is now defined by Facebook. You have friends. Right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But just think about that. Just think about how even, even the idea of what friendship is on Facebook and the way that it has kind of begun to define our culture has really devalued friendship. Now, a good friend of mine, and he is a friend, uh, is a counselor, and he, we were sitting in my office one day, and, you know, he said, and I found this really interesting, he said, you know, 90%, probably 75 to 90% of the people that come in to me as a therapist for mental health counseling, for help, for their life has fallen apart, and they just, you know, they're really desperate looking for somebody, they don't really need a therapist. They really just need a friend. I mean, we are a culture of people who don't do friendship well. We, we really are. And so this morning we have an opportunity to look at these passages and, and see what God has to say about how we might um, repent well and really go after uh, the, the goal of being uh, friends to one another. So let's look at four things this morning, and we're going to move quickly through them. 
that this passage teaches us about friendship, I think. Okay, first, the theological grounds for it. Secondly, the conditions of it. Thirdly, the parts of it. And then fourthly, the power for it. So the theological grounds for friendship, the conditions for friendship, the parts of friendship, and the power for it. Let's just walk through those four things. Okay, first, beginning with this. The theological grounds for friendship. Now, this this is not in, in this particular text, but I think it is worth noting briefly. Okay? If we were to go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to the first chapters of the book of Genesis, there's an interesting thing that happens there. Adam, who is the first man, is in the garden, this incredible paradise that God has created for him, and it's good. And there's this rhythm that happens in the story as it unfolds in Genesis. God creates it, and it's good. He creates this, and it's good. He puts Adam in the garden, and it's good. Everything's good. There's no sickness, no death. He's in perfect relationship with God. Everything is good, and then you get to the point in the chapter where, except there's this one thing that's not good. And that is that Adam is alone. He's alone. And he was lonely. And God says in Genesis 2, 18, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> it's not good for man to be alone. I mean, what, why is it, what is it about Adam's design that made him need relationships? What is it about the way you and I we're made, what does it say about the way we're made that even paradise is not enough without friends to share it with? And this is the theological grounds for friendship. We were made in God's image. And if you look at the language carefully back there in Genesis, it's very fascinating. When God begins to talk about creation, he says it this way. He says, let us make man in our own image. First person plural. Let us. I mean, who's the us See, God is Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's what that means. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, okay, I want to just get, if, or if you've, you know, you struggle and wrestle through what, what Christianity is and how you might come to understand it, here's one of the things that Christianity believes. Christianity teaches that friendship is at the essence of God and it's at the heart of the universe. Before there was a universe, before there was anything, From all eternity, there was an eternal friendship of divine persons who infinitely and eternally and perfectly loved and delighted in one another. And so the reason that Adam in the garden needed a friend and the reason that you and I need friends is because we're made in the image of God. We need friends because we're like God. And friendship is at the heart of who God is. It's part of our design. There's no way around it. And so let me make a couple of applications before we move on to to the second point. I think first that means, here's what this means. It means, number one, that friendships are worth sacrificing for. Friendships are worth passing up job promotions to stay in the same city where your friends are because relationships are the most important thing in life. I mean, friendships are worth going, you know, going without other things for the sake of keeping them. But then a second application, not only are friendships worth sacrificing for, they're worth fighting for. They're worth doing whatever you've got to do to find them. And to keep them, I think secondly, what this means is that the longing for friendship is not a weakness, but it's a strength. See, if you're lonely, or if you're sad because you want friends, and for whatever reason you've had a hard time finding good friends, that doesn't mean you're weak or you're needy, it means you're like God. In other words, it's not a sign of your imperfection it's a sign of your perfection, but if you don't need people, if you're just closed off and you got it covered, see, you're not like God. So longing for friendship is not a weakness, it's a strength. It's not a sign of your imperfection, 
but a sign of your perfection. But then thirdly, I think the third application, just very quickly, is friendship then is really a missional strategy. And here's what I mean by that. I, I spent some time this summer reading some books about evangelism and missions, and one in particular I really enjoyed was by a guy named Rodney Clapp. He was the co-editor or the associate editor of Christianity Today for a long time. And for 300 pages, I, this book, you know, for 300 pages, I, I read about how Christians should be engaged with the culture and what it means for us to have a mission and to live missionally and, and to be for the city and, and all these kinds of things. And at the very end of the book, he, he says, okay, I'm going to finally offer you kind of my, here's my summary statement of this is how you change a city. This is the strategy for culture engagement. And I, I really, you're going to laugh. But I, as I was reading, I mean, I'm literally, I've, I've invested a month in reading this book. I'm, my heart begins to literally beat a little faster because this is why, you know, I've read the book. He's going to finally tell me, here's what I need to do. And after 300 pages, here's what he said. He says, the way the church can testify to the truth of the gospel and the way the church can change the world. Any idea? He says, here, here it is. Friendship. Really? And then I got to thinking about the reality that all of the cultural forces we're confronted with create a super highway toward material attainment, towards status seeking, but they work against and absolutely destroy the kind of time and space and spontaneity and creativity that are required for developing deep, intimate friendships. And so to commit to the practice of friendship necessarily means you reject certain cultural norms and patterns, and values. You refuse to move away from family and friends for a better salary. You work less hours in the week. You cut down on extracurricular activities because to, you know, you got to have time. you got to have energy. you got to have space. you got to have creativity. you got to do these things. And so to commit to being a good friend will necessarily make you countercultural. So it's a missional strategy. And there's the theological grounds for friendship. Now, we're made in the image of God. So secondly then... If that's the theological grounds for friendship, then what are the conditions that promote friendship? Because I think this passage also speaks to this as well. And what the passage teaches is just this, two things, two things. Number one, every friendship needs a mission. And number two, every friendship needs a covenant. A mission and a covenant. This is, these are the conditions that promote friendship, a mission and a covenant. Let's look at both of these, okay? Every friendship needs a mission. Every friendship needs a shared journey. What fueled David's Friendship with Jonathan is their shared mission. Look at how the narrator says it in verse 1 of chapter 18. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, we're told. I mean, that Hebrew word there for soul is this great word. It's a word that refers to the most basic desires and loves and drives in a person's life. And so David and Jonathan were knit together because they shared the same passions and hopes and loves. I mean, if you read, their lives were overlapped and intertwined in so many ways. They're... You know, they're both young men. They're both young men in Saul's court. They're both warriors in Saul's army. But it's much more than that. They have a shared mission. There's something that's fueling, a journey they're on together that's fueling their friendship with one another. And if you look at chapter 23, verse 17, all the way down at the bottom of the page that I gave you, you'll see what it is. It's when Jonathan seeks out David after Saul threatens his life. And he says, do not fear. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. See, that's it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and in the book there's a chapter on friendship that is just marvelous. You should read it. And in the chapter he writes this, he says, Lovers, we picture face to face, but friends, side by side, their eyes looking ahead. He says the very condition 
of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. I mean, this is very, this is very, uh, very, very insightful, I think. He said, if, there, if there's not some shared mission, some shared ideal or truth, no friendship can arise, though affection, of course, may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Or college football. Right? Those who have nothing can share nothing. And those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Now, what C.S. Lewis is saying is this. He's saying friendships are discovered. I mean, for many pages in that, that chapter in that book, he labors to show that friendship is really different from what he calls companionship. And when we, he says when we talk about friends, typically uh, the people that we talk about and call our friends are really just companions. We may spend a lot of time with them. Uh, we may do a lot of things together, but they're not really friends. We might, they might, you know, you know, might work with them. You might play baseball with, with them or go to school with them, and you're around them a lot, but they're not friends. They're just companions. And according to C.S. Lewis... What he says is, he says, when a friend turns into a companion, is there, there's some point, maybe in a conversation, there's something that comes you know, in, there's a time when you're with that person, and they say something, and they, or they do something, and the response of your heart is something like this. It's something like, you too? You too. You see, there's something deeper, there's something, there's something more intimate underneath the relationship that, that brings the two souls of those people together. It was funny, we were, I had this happen to me just the other day with a man who's becoming a friend. We were just kind of together and just telling our stories and it was just this fascinating situation of, really, you too? Wow. And, and just the sense of just our experience is so lining up and it's just, this is just the way friendship happens. We have begged, we have begged and begged and begged from the very beginning of the church that we would, we have community groups in our church and we've begged that we would think about those community groups and prox- you know, being kind of picking a community group by the proximity with which you live towards those people. But no matter how hard we've begged, you're an obstinate and stubborn people and you not listen. I'm just joking. That's, that's, that's absolutely a joke. But what we've seen happen is instead of all people in Garden Grove kind of forming a Garden Grove community group, what's happened is people with small kids go find a whole bunch of other people with small kids who are doing the same thing they're doing and run around trying to chase these kids around and are desperate because they're freaking out. They don't know what they're doing and they need somebody to help. And so wherever you are in life, you know, and whatever the circumstances of people are, are grouping up based upon what we would call their passions or their life circumstances, just kind of where they are. That makes sense. Because friendships need a shared mission. And listen, if you've got a community group like I did at one time about a year ago where there were 17 kids under the age of 8 in the community group, that is a mission. Okay? And we've seen this happen. So every friendship needs a mission. See? Friendship, the friendship needs something for the friendship to be about, some greater passion or love. Every marriage needs a mission. You know, every deep, intimate relationship needs a mission. And the ultimate mission to build a friendship on is to see God's anointed gain his throne. See, David and Jonathan's mission is David's throne. You see that? And, and that means for us that the ultimate shared mission, the thing that's really going to bring us together as friends, is, is the ultimate shared mission of seeing the kingdom of God come to earth for the Lord Jesus, the true king, to be exalted in our city and in our world. And if that's the mission of your life, then that means what's going to happen. If that really is your aim, if that's the thing you're living for, then let me just give you insight into what's going to begin to happen. If that's true of you, then here's what's going to happen to your friendships. You're going to become friends with people you would otherwise not choose as friends. 
take the Lord of the Rings, for example, okay? Obligatory Lord of the Rings reference. Okay? What do you have if you don't know the story? In the story, you have all these different races of people. You have dwarves and elves. And by the way, the dwarves and the elves hate one another. They're, they're, they're enemies to one another. And then there are these different kingdoms of men who are rivals. And, and they're competitors of one another. And So the first time the fellowship of the ring gets together, there's fighting and yelling and screaming. And you think, how in the world... Are these people going to get done? But then they go on a journey together and they see it. They face down an evil and they share a mission with one another and they sweat and they bleed together and something happens. They become friends. And the story of the Lord of the Rings really is a story of friendship. And the necessity of the mission turns natural enemies into friends. And so for us, one of the ways you know you've experienced God's grace in the gospel is your friends with people who wouldn't otherwise be friends with you. Now, they're different from you in personality and lifestyle and culture and skin color and socioeconomic status, whatever it may be, but the mission brings you together. So if you don't have a list of people like that, is the gospel a living reality in your life? Every friendship needs a mission. And in the church, you're going to become friends with people who are very different than you in temperament and personality. So get ready for that. People who have different political affiliations, even different theological commitments than you do. Because the mission of the church brings people of all colors and stripes together. That's part of what Jesus is trying to do through the power of the gospel. But that can make friendship hard. And therefore, not only does every friendship need a mission, but every friendship needs a covenant. And the overriding feature of this story really that explains the friendship of David and Jonathan with one another is the idea of covenant. And if you look at the text, you'll see twice we read, verse 3 of chapter 18 and then verse 16 of of chapter 20, Jonathan made covenant with David, verse 3, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan made covenant with the house of David again in chapter 20, verse 16. And to understand the idea of covenant, contrast it to how we do things in the business world, Okay. If you want to understand this kind of relational dynamic, take, for example, the relationship between a vendor and a consumer. A vendor offers a product uh, to you, the consumer, and you have a relationship with that vendor as long as they meet your needs at an acceptable cost to you. But if at any time the vendor fails to meet your needs or your expectations or they ask you to pay too much, they ask too much from you, then you are under no obligation whatsoever to stay with the other vendor. You are completely free to go with the better deal. You're, you can take your business elsewhere. And, and it's, that is the consumer or the user model that dominates the marketplace. But a relationship that bases, is based upon covenant is different. It involves vows and commitments and, and you know, blood and threats and all of these kinds of things. And we're told here in verse 1 that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. See, this is covenantal language. This is a, a relationship based upon covenant. Jonathan loves David as his own soul. And if you're familiar with the Bible, that should sound very familiar to you. The second greatest commandment is just this, not only that we love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, but that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So if you're a user, if you're a user, then your individual needs and rights are what are most important If you're not getting your needs met or you're dissatisfied with the quality of service you're receiving, then you can walk away without even thinking about it. But if you're a covenantal person, right? if the, if the idea of covenant is at the basis of your relationships with people, then your needs and rights come after your responsibility to the relationship 
and to the thriving of the other person. And that's what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You pursue the well-being of that person with all of the intensity and passion and creativity with which you pursue your own needs. And what you need comes second, what they need comes first, and you can't walk away. No matter what happens, you can't walk away. You're bound to that person. And what has happened in our culture in just the last few decades is that this vendor-consumer model of relationships, which at one time was confined to the marketplace, you know, between business people or or consumers and the the grocery stores they go to or whatever, what's happened is it's now bled over, and now this vendor-consumer model is the basis on which we conduct all of our relationships. And so marriage is now seen as a user relationship rather than a covenantal relationship. So if you're in a marriage and your spouse doesn't meet your needs the way you think they should, then, or if they get Alzheimer's disease and they can't, you know, they can't take care of you anymore, then you just trade them in for a new model. Right? You're completely free to find another spouse. Friendships are now much more user relationships rather than covenantal. We do a cost-benefit analysis. You know, how much is it going to really, what am I going to really, what's it going to take to do, am I, you know, am I going to get my return on my, you know, we do these things, but, and if I'm not getting my needs met, then I'm out. I mean, you meet my needs, I'm happy to stay in a relationship, but if, if not, then I'm out of here. And so we feel no obligation to one another beyond that. But you see, users aren't friends. Users aren't friends. Friends are covenantal. Friendships are relationships that are based upon a covenant. And by the way, that's why when we receive people into membership at this church, we, whoop, sorry about that, we take vows. We take vows. In the same way that Jonathan and David take vows to one another here. Because we realize being in covenant relationship with people that are not like you, that have different personalities and practices that you may not even agree with, who are just very different in socioeconomic and all kinds of ways of culture, it's very, very hard. And so the only thing that can sustain faithful friendships in those things is to be covenantal with one another. And that's why we take vows. So every friendship needs a mission. Every friendship needs a covenant. But before we move to the very end here, I want to just, for just one more minute, I want to look in a little more detail about what a friendship is based on, what a friendship based on a covenant looks like, and look at, thirdly, the parts of a good friendship. And there are also two parts of a good, good, good friendship that are covenantal in nature. So how do you know if you're a covenantal person rather than a user? This is kind of how we're progressing through this, okay? And there are two things, really, that you need to look at uh, in your relationships to see whether or not you're still a user or whether you really are covenantal in your relationship with other people. And the first is just this. Every covenant... Every covenantal relationship is constant. It has constancy at the foundation of it. A friend never gives up on you. I mean, a true friend refuses to quit on you. No matter what the cost, they stick it out with you. I mean, think about what it costs Jonathan to love David here. He gives up his crown rights. He's alienated from his father, who eventually tries to kill him too. He loses everything, but he's a friend. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how costly it is, he remains a friend to David, and that's the first part of a friendship. A true friend is constant. And there's a word in the middle of this passage that you need to find in 1 Samuel twenty fourteen and 15. It's really important. And in those verses, Jonathan pleads with David. He says, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but if I were to die when you come into your kingdom, he, here's what he says. He says, do not cut off your steadfast love from me and my family. And that word steadfast love there, both in verse 14 and verse 15, is this beautiful Hebrew word, chesed. 
which means covenant loyalty, something like covenant loyalty or covenant solidarity. It means to be bound to a person no matter what. My favorite translation would probably be something like this. It means stubborn love. It means a love that refuses to give up on the other person, even if you have every right and reason to walk away. I mean, you might have a great reason for ending the relationship, some sort of offense or whatever it might be, but you refuse to do that because you're bound to them. You love them stubbornly. I mean, what, what would David have been expected to do with Jonathan and Jonathan's family when he came into his throne? They were the rival, they were the rival clan. He would to be to kill them. But Jonathan says, show me, show me hesed love. Show me steadfast love. Don't, don't quit loving me. Don't give up on loving me. And if you want an illustration of what this chesed love looks like, look no further than the book we're reading in the Old Testament in our community Bible reading right now, the book of Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, God goes to the prophet Hosea and he says, I want you to take this woman, Gomer. Now, the name should have tipped them off. Okay? Right? And he says, I want you to marry that woman. And he marries her. And she's unfaithful to him. And God comes to him again and says, Hosea, you have every right to divorce her. But you're not going to do that. You're going to go. You're going to find her. You're going to forgive her. You're going to restore the relationship. And Hosea says, why in the world would I do that? And God says, because that's the way I've loved you. See, it's this, the, the, the idea, as you read Hosea in the coming weeks, chesed love, this idea of steadfast love is at the center of that book, a love that has every reason to walk away, betrayal and adultery, but refuses to because of the covenant bond that has been forged between the people. See, a true friend is constant. A true friend loves stubbornly. They never give up on you. No matter how hard it gets, they never walk away. But then their second thing is not only are true friends uh, constant, they never give up on you. True friends, they always let you in. A true friend opens up his heart and makes himself vulnerable to you. He offers you intimacy, so constancy and intimacy. And look at all the ways this comes out in the text, okay? You see Jonathan stripping himself of his robe and his weapons. He's making himself vulnerable. We're told their souls are knit together here. They could, in other words, they could finish each other's sentences. There's lots of dialogue. He says, I, will I withhold him? I mean, they, they refuse to withhold information from one another. And then there's all this crying and kissing, which is just weird because they're two men and you know, men don't do that sort of thing in our culture, but they're, they're emotionally vulnerable with one another. They kiss and cry and hug. Ugh, you know. And the language even is emotive and intimate. Look at verse 16 of chapter 20. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. I mean, there's just, there's just all this emotive, intimate language. You see, a true friend, a true friend isn't aloof and standoffish. She lets you in. She doesn't try to hide her emotions. She offers you intimacy. She shares her struggles and her fears, and she invites your criticism. There's nothing that's off limits. There's no distance. There's, there's no posturing in a true friendship. And that's the, you know, the irony of, of allowing Facebook to define friendship because you know, the, the irony of that is that it has nothing to do with friendship because in, you control the flow of information. I mean, the whole thing's posturing. I mean, you present the image of yourself you want others to believe is true, but that's not friendship. True, true friendship offers intimacy. Everything's on the table. Constancy and intimacy. So again, I need to finish. So we have to end with this. So then where do we find the power for good friendships? We have to ask this because there's a problem in our hearts, okay? Sin works against these kinds of friendships. We're scared of friendship like this because on the one hand, it requires constancy, commitment. You know, we have to bear with the offenses of others. We really have to be selfless in our loving of other people. And naturally, we're selfish. And we don't want to make that kind of commitment to people because it's cost. 
It's costly. But on the other hand, friendship requires intimacy, and that's, let's be honest, scary. I mean, we're, I'm scared to death to open myself up to the criticism of other people, to let you in, you know, to really let people in, to see what's really on the inside of my life and my heart. So covenant friendships are costly. They're hard. They require sacrifice and courage and humility, and our hearts naturally don't possess these qualities. We're naturally too selfish for friendship, and we're too scared for friendship. So where do we find the power for good friendship? And the clue in the text, which didn't get printed, unfortunately, is at the end of chapter 20. And at the end of chapter 20, verse 42, you can look at it later. Jonathan, in, part, in his parting words with David at the end of that chapter, he says, the Lord shall be between you and me from this day forward. Now, what does he mean by that? And this is what I got to say at the close here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his little book, Life Together, which is fantastic, makes an interesting point about Christian community. He says that in order for one Christian to get to another, they first literally have to go through Christ. Literally, Christ stands between each of us so that in order for me to get to you, I first have to deal with him. And so when Jonathan says to David, the Lord be between you and me, it's another way of saying it's God's love for me that will determine my love for you. It's God's covenant loyalty to me that will sustain my covenant with you. God stands between us. His love defines our love. And so how do we overcome our selfishness so we can love others covenantally with constancy and loyalty, stubbornly refusing to give up on one another? Well, the key is just this. It's in that passage that I chose for your call to worship, where Jesus says to his disciples and to us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. See, that's what Jonathan means. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer means when he says that the only way for me to get to you is to go through Jesus, that my relationship with you is not without reference to him. It's based on him. And so the love that we have for one another is based on his love for us. And what is his love for us in that passage? I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so the way that you and I find the power to be good friends is to see what a friend we have in Jesus. He calls us friends. Do you get, I mean, do you see that? And he loves us with such constancy that he laid down his life for us. Jesus' friendship with us cost him his life and he gave it up. So look at Jonathan in the passage. Stripping himself of his royal robe and his weapons and laying aside his claim to the throne. I mean, time and time again, he laid down his life for David, and eventually, literally, his friendship with David cost him his life. Well, we have a friend like that, but one even greater than that. And our friend came all the way from heaven to earth and stripped himself of his royal robes, his, his divinity and his eternality and his omnipresence, and he became nothing. I mean, Jesus loves covenantally, and here's how you know he means what he says. He loved you all the way to the cross. Greater love hath no man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. And when you see him loving you with chesed love to the point of his own death, only then will you find the grace to love your friends that way too. But then again, how do we overcome our fear so that we can pursue intimacy with our friends to share the deepest part of our lives with them and make ourselves vulnerable? Well, Jesus, think about this. Jesus knows you. All the ugly parts of your heart that you keep hidden from everybody else, he knows you better than any other friend possibly could. All the dark desires, all the selfish thoughts and motivations, he knows you, and he loves you still. So you don't have to worry about the disapproval of other people, I know. I mean, I know it's scary to open your life up to people and to make yourself vulnerable to them, but you can do it. Because even if they disapprove of you, it doesn't matter so much because God approves of you. His constancy is the basis for your constancy. 
His intimacy is the basis for your intimacy. Therefore, you're never in deficit. (laughs) You have the love of God. That's the message of the gospel. So you won't be a user. You won't evaluate relationships on a cost-benefit analysis because all of your needs are already met in Him. And you won't have to bail on people when they're hard to love and they're not meeting your needs because you won't be looking to them for that. You'll have the power to be covenantal to put put the needs of others ahead of your own needs because Jesus is the perfect friend. And His friendship can turn you into the kind of friend and me into the kind of friend that David was to Jonathan and that Jonathan was to David. And that, those kinds of friendships will change a city and will change a world. So let's pray that God will come and do that in our midst. Can we do that together as the team comes to lead us in a song at the end here? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think of the old, uh, the old hymn that I used to sing in the Baptist church I grew up in. What a friend we have in Jesus. And I can't remember a whole lot of the words beyond that line, but that's enough to just cause me to stop and wonder that you, who are the firstborn over all creation, the sovereign God of heaven and earth, the eternal Son of the Father from on high, uh, that you call us friends. That's just amazing. So would you come in these moments, these last moments we have together, and would you melt our heart with that truth? That in you we have the friend we're looking for. And so we don't have to lean so heavily upon the other friends in our lives and be mad at them when they don't meet our needs and and constantly be, you know, critical of them and, and be kind of disappointed, but that we look to you, Lord Jesus, to meet our emotional needs so that you might send us out in the power of your spirit to not think about our needs, but to be good friends to other people. Would you come and do that in our midst? Would you, by the spirit, make us good friends to one another so that the world may see the love with which we love one another? And it may testify to the truth of the love that you have for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come and do that great work among us that we may bear fruit that would be to your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, really quick, please do come tonight. Uh, it'll be a great time. If you're a community group leader, would you please help us this afternoon pass the word just to remind people we've put a lot of work into this. We don't ask for you guys to come back for a lot of Sunday night meetings. But we would ask that you come uh, tonight and, and please make a priority to do that. Also, in two weeks, we've not really said a lot. This is a big deal, this particularization thing. So put on your calendar uh, in two weeks that we'll be here on Sunday night as well. And then I promise we won't have any Sunday night meetings for a long time, okay? Uh, But be here in two weeks. We actually have invitations in the office. If you would like to send, we're going to be sending invitations to friends and churches in our community. If you want to send an invitation to somebody, uh, please do that. We're hoping this place will be packed out from people in Lakeland and all over the place that come to celebrate with us. So be aware of that now. Now, if you're someone who you look at your own heart and you can see where you are prone to just give up on people, as soon as it gets hard, you're, just, you're too willing to just to walk away, or maybe you're just aloof and you're kind of hidden and withdrawn from people, then part of what the gospel needs, to, how the gospel needs to heal your heart is to take your, you know, take your willingness to walk away and turn it into constancy or to take your aloofness and turn it into a, to a commitment to intimacy. Because we believe that part of an experience of the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that our hearts get healed and the power of the gospel comes in uh, to, to give us the strength to be good friends. So as we strive for that, know that the only way you're going to get there is to really, really believe the words of the benediction. That what your heart needs to hear as you pursue friendships with one another is that because of the work of Jesus Christ, you're already loved and approved by God. He is your friend because of Jesus' work, and that is the promise of this benediction. So receive it and rest in it then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.